Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Exodus chapter 40, and we're going to be in verse 33 when we get there. Just a bit of good news, you know, just to keep this in perspective, we've been 26 weeks now in the book of Exodus. But to keep it in perspective, you know, it took Moses 40 years to get out of Exodus. So just (laughs) be grateful. Wait till we start Leviticus. (laughs) This entire story began with a cry. Every good rescue story begins with a cry, a moan, a groan, somehow a reaching out for help. And in the third chapter of Exodus, we heard that the Israelites' cry met, it, met the ears of our Lord, and the Lord met the needs of the Israelites. We hear these words. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have seen how the Egyptians oppress them. And there, in the third chapter of Exodus, you and I are introduced for the first time in the history of humankind to a God who pays attention to the margin. That the cry of everyone who is pressed out and forgotten and pressed down and oppressed is remembered in the ears of this God. So he reaches out to one of them, to Moses, a child who was raised not as a Hebrew, but raised in the palace of Pharaoh. And he says, I want you to join with me. And what I'm up to in the world, because I'm going to set some people free, not just now, but forever. And Moses says, well, not me. Who am I? You remember these conversations. Who am I? I'm not qualified to do these things. I don't speak so well. I don't, I don't talk so good. <laughs> you don't, they don't know me. I, I don't know you. Who am I to do this big thing that you're calling me to do? And God says, what do you mean, who are you to do this big thing? You were raised in the palace. Who are you not to use the grace and the mercy that was given you. Who are you not to use your Egyptian privilege to set other people free? So he sends Moses to Pharaoh with a a message that sounds something like this. Let my people go so they may worship me. The entire theme that we've been studying for 26 weeks is about freedom for worship. And why? Because God knew that when people worship, It provokes an imagination that enables them to see their existence in the world not as it is, enslaved, oppressed, beaten down, but as it could be, free and full of life. So let my people go that they may worship. And then we walk through 15 chapters of trying to set the people free. 15 chapters worth of stories in which the plagues come. Remember the plagues? And with each plague, God is systematically dismantling the infrastructure of presumed power and domination from Egypt. And with each plague, like a 
like a wrecking ball knocking down everything that up to that point had kept the people from thinking they could actually be free. Fifteen chapters in, and they think, well, it takes a long time to get through this part of Exodus, and the reason is because it takes a long time sometimes to be set free. Whether the enslavement that you and I experience is... uh, some kind of spiritual darkness or emotional, psychological darkness. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's some kind of relational um, disenfranchisement. Maybe there's some kind of a, a disconnect with family. Whatever it is, it sometimes takes a long time to be set free. But after 15 chapters of being set free, don't forget that it took oh, just one night for all of Israel to get out of of Egypt. But it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of Israel. Sometimes it takes a while. And then we moved into three more chapters, 15, 16, and 17, in which we saw them wandering through the wilderness, wandering because we, we mused a little bit during those weeks, if you'll remember, that sometimes after you're set free by a thing, you go through a period of wondering, dude, I really want this freedom. I mean, the businesses, they coalesced, right? Or the family, after the divorce, there was a remarriage and there was a blending of all the kids or maybe something happens at church and everything from the outside in looks like it's going to be healthier. It's going to be better for us. We're going to be stronger. But right now, while the systems are still kind of moving around, I'm not so sure I really want this. Every time we're set free, we question whether we want this freedom because for the people of Israel, they had to say yes to a new rhythm of existing in the world in which now they had a God who had certain expectations which leads us to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 and 24, for six chapters we see what we refer to as the establishment of the covenant where God basically says to the people, All right, now I've set you free, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, but this is how this is going to shake out. I have some expectations, and in that period of the book of Exodus, he gives two great gifts. He gives the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, with certain expectations, black and white, very clear, do this and don't do this, love me and love your neighbors, but then he also gives the Book of Covenant, an extended kind of commentary on the Ten Commandments. You might even think of that entire passage that we studied for several weeks. You might think of that entire section as the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution. And there at the end, God says, now, we've got a plan. I'll be your people. You'll be my God. This is how this is going to work. And then we moved a few weeks ago into the most important section of the entire book of Exodus. The construction of the tabernacle. Because somewhere early in the the, the Sinai event, God calls Moses up and says, now look, I've set you free, but that's not all. I'm not not done with you. I I want to abide with you. I don't just set people free, but I I keep them free. So he says, build for me, uh, have them make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them and then. For 13 straight chapters, we have detail after detail about where to put the furniture. And we talked about the feng shui of the tabernacle. Curtains here, rods there. What are they made of? Do they flow? You know. And for chapter after chapter, 25 through 31 is detailed instruction. 
But then 35 through 40 is detailed construction. Almost a word-for-word mirror image of the two passages. In one section, God says, here's what to do. In the other section, God sees Moses do it. And then in between the two, in between the instruction and construction, there's an interruption. And we studied last week the golden calf where the people of covenant, the very first act of the people of covenant was to break the covenant, and we imagined, isn't that the way we do it? Isn't that the way we always do it? And now we come to the end. The the tabernacle has been constructed. Everything is complete, and there's only one thing left to do. It's time for God to move in. We pick up the reading in chapter 40, verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night because the eyes of the house of Israel at each stage of the journey, before the eyes of the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. The very last thing done in the book of Exodus here at the culmination of this entire story of liberation. And not only at the culmination and conclusion of this book of the Bible, but at the beginning of their continued story and where they go from here, God gives Moses and the people of Israel, and for that matter, all humankind, two gifts, two graces, with which nothing is impossible and without which nothing is possible. Today I want to talk about those two gifts. The gifts, the presence and action of God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Amen. Two great gifts given by God to Moses, the Israelites, and to you, to me. The presence and action of God. The cloud comes down and settles on the tabernacle. It's a cloud, and I love that the cloud, which symbolizes God's presence in the camp, I love that it descends, that it comes down from on high, because that's how God always postures God's love. 
It's a kind of love that comes down. It reminds me of the prologue of the Gospel of John where we are told, in the beginning was the Word, and, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then He was in the beginning with God, and everything that came into being came into being through Him, and not one thing that has come into being has come into being without Him. And then later in verse 14, the Word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. See, I love the downward motion of God's love. It goes down. I, I think about Philippians 2. Have this mind in, in you which was also in Christ Jesus that although he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but he emptied himself and became humble and obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So when we read here that, that the tabernacle sees the cloud of God's presence descend upon it I'm like yeah it's because that's what God has been wanting to do since the dawn of time, God, the creator of everything that is, the creator of earth and sky and sea and salt and tree frogs and cicadas, the God who created it all now wants to abide in and with and among it all. So it comes down to abide and there's the presence. And that's fantastic, but it's not even the coolest part of that passage. In that passage, not only does the presence of God comes down, but so does the action, the action of God. Did you notice that in the text we just read, the cloud comes down and then it goes back up and the cloud comes down and it goes back up, not because God comes and goes, but because when life tells you it's time to get up and move and go into more wilderness and maybe even more battle, the God who has come to be with you does not get up and go. It gets up and moves with you. There is the presence of God, yes, but there is the action of God. And the tabernacle is this, this physical reminder that every time the Israelites looked up and saw the cloud descending upon the tabernacle, it's a reminder that God is with us in this camp but if we should strike camp and move, and if we get under attack, or if we have to move across some boundary, God promises to go with us. And this is unprecedented. I want you to know it's unprecedented in the history of ancient Near Eastern religions. I mean, there were plenty of gods who would set up camp with their people. I would have my God over this zip code. And you would have your God over that zip code. And as long as the God over my dirt doesn't interfere with the God over your dirt, we're going to be fine. But here's a God of all dirt. He says, it's all mine. And so I will come down and live among it. And when it's time to move, I will go with you. And the tabernacle is a reminder of the presence and action of God alive in the world. And the question I want to ask you as we prepare our minds and hearts for this table is are you aware that the presence and action of God is, is here? And that is in you. Because see, this story of the tabernacle that we have spent now 26 weeks in studying and getting underneath and immersing ourselves in, this story of the tabernacle, it has, it has another part to it, and that is this. The tabernacle, it was meant to only be temporary, see. The tabernacle was kind of a blueprint or a prototype of what would become the permanent temple later in Jerusalem. A temple that was even more magnificent and grand. A temple of stone and brick and mortar and bronze and silver and gold. It would be in Jerusalem the permanent mailing address 
in their minds of where God was on the earth. It's the, it's the holy dwelling place of the Most High God, and you could, you could Google Earth it. You could find it on Google Earth. There it is. And for a long period of time, that worked. And so people doing faith in Judaism would look and see on the high hill the, the temple, and in the temple, in the back of the temple, the very in, in, inside holy places, the presence of God on earth. So we're not alone. He is with us. But then what happens in the year 586 when the Babylonians defeat Judah and they ransack the temple? And in destroying this magnificent home of God, in this magnificent dwelling place of the Most High, they round up all of the noble citizens, all the educated, all the priests, all the business people, and they send them into exile as a way to further diminish their confidence. And they, living in exile, then they look up and they recognize, what do we do now? Because we have hung our hope on the fact that the God who brought us out of Egypt is the God whose presence and action is always with us. It always moves with us. And we built a temple, a great Solomonic temple, and now we see it smoldering in ruins. Maybe the whole thing was a lie. Have you ever come to the place where you just wonder if your whole, your whole theological history is just a lie? Have you ever doubted to that level a fear that maybe, maybe, I, maybe I was brainwashed. Maybe it was all sounded great. And there he is in the temple. Smoke comes down. Smoke goes up. It's great. But now this thing is lying in ruins. Have you ever come to some rubble in your religion that has caused you to wonder, is this really? And there in exile, the prophets begin to whisper. Don't give up hope. Don't give up belief because the God who was with you and brought you out of Egypt and has even watched you go into exile, this God wants to establish a new kind of covenant with you, not one written on stone tablets, but one written on your heart that has been softened and broken. So Persia comes and defeats Babylon, and the Persians, well, they're a little bit softer on the locals, and they allow a building campaign. And they rebuild the temple, and there it is, even more magnificent than before. It's the second temple of Judaism, and it's, it's, it's this magnificent structure, and it's the same temple, by the way, where our Lord Jesus is dedicated as a baby. It's the same temple where our Lord Jesus, after bar mitzvah, is able to enter into a particular court. It's the same temple that our Lord Jesus, when he's 12 years old and the parents can't find him, where'd you go? I've always been in my father's house. It's the same temple where one day when he recognizes where this whole thing is going, he stood with his disciples and he said, look at these buildings. Look at this great wall of stone and gold and silver and bronze. And they say, yeah, isn't it awesome? And he says, tear it down. Tear it all down. And in three days, I'll build it back. And they say, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? It took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it back in three days? But you know that he's talking not about the building, but about himself and his resurrection. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, also raised with him was not only salvation for all humankind, but also raised with Jesus 
was an awareness that the dwelling place of the Most High God is not bound to buildings made of stone. But the dwelling place of the Most High God, the very presence and action of the Lord our God is in the heart of every human being who welcomes him in. This is, this is why at the end of your Bible, in the 21st chapter of that book, we hear a glimpse of a vision of where life is going, y'all. And this is what it sounds like. In Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why the sea? Because the sea in the ancient mind represented separation. There was no longer any separation. There's coming a day when we realize, not just believe, but truly realize there is no separation between us nor between us and God. The verse continues, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Why new Jerusalem? Because this Jerusalem is not one with a physical address. This Jerusalem is not one you can Google earth. <laughs> this Jerusalem is a new realm found in the heart of every human believer. A new Jerusalem coming down. See, there's that downward progression again. I love it. Coming down, see, down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the tabernacle of God is among mortals. <laughs> he will tabernacle with them. What I love about this verse is we've been talking tabernacle for a very long time. But in this verse, at the end of your Bible, tabernacle is both a noun and a verb. The tabernacle of God is with mortals. Well, that's a noun. God will tabernacle. Well, that's a verb. Why does that matter? Because that's the presence and action of God. Where? In you, in you, the verse continues, they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. By the way, he will be with them. That's presence. He will wipe every tear. That's action. From whose eyes? You and me and all who have suffered. The, the verse continues, Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. What is it that has passed away? Here's what's passed away in our Lord, in Jesus Christ. The thing that has passed away is all former ways of thinking of our existence with God. We are not here and God is there. But God is here. In and among us in ways too marvelous to tell. This is why Jesus said it the way he did before he was crucified. He said, look, the kingdom of God that you're all waiting on is here. It's in you and you're near it. Open your eyes and they who have eyes can see it. This is why Paul talked about it. Paul said, I know that you are vulnerable and I know that you are weak, but this is why it's like a, a treasure in clay jars for you hold within yourself something that really ought to be kept in better containers, but it's in you. Do you know that the presence and action of God is near? The whole point of everything I'm trying to do to get us ready for this meal that we're about to take is this. You do host more than you think. 
The tabernacle is in you. The tabernacle is you. You host the holy presence and action of God. And I know you hear that and you say, not, not me. <laughs> because you don't know my level of trouble. You don't know how weak I am and what I do and what I think and the things I say. You don't know how bad it can get. No, I do. I do. But this is the marvelous mystery of it all. That in, that in you and in me can be something so much more holy than we ever imagined. This is why we take the bread. This is why we take the bread, because we eat the bread to remind ourselves that we, we believe something about Jesus, that in Jesus, heaven and earth kissed. In Jesus, presence and action merged. In Jesus, divinity and humanity was perfectly integrated. And when you and I eat the bread and drink the cup, we get to consume that life. We get to ingest within our hearts that level of love. When you take this bread and cup today, remember the immense mystery and power of what will be in your hands and what you will consume with your mouth. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, you, you uh, remember me. What do you remember? You remember that the, the holy presence and action of God is so close you can smell it like the... Like the smell of baking bread, you can taste it, you can feel it. So eat. In the same way, he, he took a, a cup and after he had blessed it, he said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, you you remember me, the new covenant, not one made of stones etched on the side of some mountain, but a, a new covenant designed by the pouring out of his own sacrificial blood. And as often as you drink this cup, you are to remember that Christ is in you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, he said, you proclaim the Lord's death. The Lord's good news, the Lord's extraordinary gospel, until he comes. Beloved, this table is set for you. It's set for anyone who would come and partake. The only requirement is that you are hungry and that you thirst for the presence and action of God. Let's pray. God, even now as we prepare our minds and hearts for the breaking of bread and the pouring of the cup, even now as we prepare to eat and drink and remember, our prayer is that you would instill within us a keen awareness of your holy presence, a presence that is not meant simply to bring comfort to us, but transformation to the world 
we thank you for this table and for the forever eternal reminder that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We eat it now and drink it now in your holy name. Amen. Pray with me. We give you thanks for this bread, O Christ, and pray that in eating it, we are strengthened by the awareness of your holy presence. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Pray with me. We give you thanks, O Christ, for this cup and the sacrifice of your precious blood which has provided it for us. As we drink deeply of your love today, remind us it is also a call to action. Love the world through us even now as we drink. In Christ's name, amen.